This is the Laravel News Podcast, your one-stop podcast to find out about Laravel-related news, tutorials, packages, and more. Here are your hosts, Jake Bennett and Michael Dorenda. I'm recording. Are you recording? I'm recording. Today marks a momentous occasion, Laravel News Podcast listeners. Today was the first day in the history of Michael and I recording that I told Michael what episode we were recording. Today is episode 60. <laughs> Never mind the fact that Michael already had it written down on a sheet of paper and I was stalling for time till I could find the number because I'm always like, Michael, what episode are we on? And you say episode 60. And today I said, all right, uh, hold on one second here before we press record. We're on episode 60, Michael, <laughs> just so you know. And then he held a paper, promptly held a paper up to the screen uh, that showed that he right. already had it written down. I'm, I'm always, always at the oh, ready, always on the ball. Always prepared, always prepared. Well, uh, we've got a lot of stuff that's happened since the last time we were podcasting together. As a quick um, reference here, I actually, so I was looking through some of the articles and I was like, where did we leave off last time? Uh, this has been really helpful for me. Uh, in Telegram, if you happen to use Telegram, there is actually a channel that you can subscribe to, a Laravel News channel, and you can get updates whenever new Laravel News stuff gets pushed out. So it's pretty cool. And I get kind of alerts throughout the week for new new blog posts and get to read mm -hmm. up on them throughout the week instead of having to try and cram for them all at one time. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, we'll put that in the show notes, the uh, Laravel News channel that you can subscribe to in Telegram. Uh, really cool. All right. Let's get started with the show. Today, we have got some releases. Let's start with Laravel 5.6.12. Mr. Dorinda, you want to yeah, walk us through I that one? Yeah, I think probably the most... Um, Prominent, obvious, biggest feature that came in this release was the uh, signed routes functionality that Taylor added to the framework. So cool. So with signed routes, they basically allow you to verify that whoever is following these routes is actually, I don't know, what, why, do we, why do we use these? So, okay. So here's the reason why you would use this. All right. So for example, let's just give the instance of like your bank. Okay. So let's say you're logging into your bank account. And the URL that they're sending you to is yourbank.com slash account number slash one, two, three. So you log in, you get all your account details. And now you decide that you want to change that URL to account number slash one, two, three, four. And now you have access to somebody else's bank account or banking information. Now, this is obviously a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Hold on, it's going to come to me. Naive. Thank you, contrived. This is a contrived example, right? Of course, what we would very likely do is we would say, okay, the account ID has to be linked to the logged in user, et cetera, et cetera, right? So contrived example. That said, what we would want to do or what a signed route would allow you to do is it would allow you to send somebody to a specific location and it has a signed hash at the end of the URL. What, it, what the framework will do then is it will make sure that that signature matches with the actual URL that they're visiting. So it would lock them down to only be able to visit that account ID slash one, two, three. So instances where this might be useful and we'll, I mean, we could circle back around to this. Chris Gamir has an article and well, I guess while we're on it, we might as well talk about it, right? So let's kind of jump ahead to this. Yeah, so Chris Gamir has an article uh, on this that he put out a couple of days after the release and gives some really good examples uh, how to get started with it uh, and some examples that you might use. 
And so one of the examples he gives is if you were doing like an RSVP URL that you would want to generate. So let's say you're sending out an invite to all your friends and you wanted to generate a RSVP URL that somebody could use and uh, the URL, you can sign it to make sure that they're actually sending, they're actually going to the exact link that you sent them in the email. In addition to having signed routes, you also have temporary URLs. So it gives us a great way to add an expiration to a signature as well. So if you wanted to expire the link in one hour from the generation, uh, you can just in the code itself say, hey, I want this temporary signed route to expire in one hour. And of course, you can use a carbon timestamp to specify when that's going to expire. But those are the two kind of large new features released in 5612. Uh, Michael, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, the only other thing that, that we looked at before we started recording was the query builder methods as well. So there's a new from sub and from raw method, which allows you to essentially use Laravel's query builder to, to build a subselect in your query. So where Laravel would typically do this for you in a lot of instances, there may be some cases where it's actually more efficient for you to run a query with a subselect in it to match some condition on a different table, for example, rather than say processing the result set using collections in PHP later. Yeah, I agree. And we had talked about this too, but we said like previously kind of these sort of subselects and subqueries were maybe frowned upon. Uh, it was like, yeah, those are kind of slow or they can be slow. And Maybe in certain situations, uh, depending on the complexity of your subquery that you're running, that's that could still possibly be true. Uh, one of the things that I've kind of realized over time, though, in the last couple of years, though, is like MySQL is an incredible engine for optimizing the queries that you're sending it, right? So as often as possible, I will try to let SQL, MySQL do a lot of the lifting, the heavy lifting when it comes to optimizing these queries. That doesn't mean that you can just throw whatever you want at it and just pretend like it's going to be fine. But at the same time, if you know how to uh, write these queries well, then a subquery isn't necessarily going to be like the end of the world, right? Yeah. It's not, it's no longer like a, uh, you know, a bad practice necessarily. No. Not that it, maybe not that it ever was. No, Sorry. it was just, it was just like a that's misconception. Right. It was just that MySQL is a lot more efficient now than what it was in handling those types of queries because people run them a lot. And obviously the engine has been updated over time to accommodate those kinds of queries being run. Sure. So now you have a from sub as well as a from raw query builder method that is available. Real quickly, maybe we can talk, uh, jump just a second back to how you generate these temporary signed routes or these signed routes. So we had had a little bit of a discussion about this as well, because typically the way that I will generate routes uh, in my application or URLs in my application is to use the route helper. And you cannot do that if you're trying to use a uh, signed route. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, so you have to use the URL generator. So whether you use the the uh, the URL facade that Laravel includes, or if you want to use the app, what do you call it? The app, sort of the container initialization function. Resolve yeah, it out of the container. The yeah. URL uh, instance out of the container, but there's no there's no like signed route global help or anything like that. It's trivial to implement if you wanted to do it yourself, but I don't know. I don't think it's it's something that you're going to be using as extensively in your code potentially as you would the route helper itself. So that may be why it doesn't exist as its own function currently. Yep. So the way that you'd call it is you just, uh, if you were using the facade, perhaps you would say URL, double colon, a route. Sorry, let me URL, think. URL, signed Got route. Got that. No, 
<laughs> Thank you. URL, double colon, signed route, and then the exact same arguments that you would use for that, which would be the name of your route and then any parameters that would come after that. If you wanted to do as a temporary signed route, you would just URL, URL double colon, temporary signed route. And uh, then as a second argument, you would add the amount of time that you would want to give before that link would expire. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. There's signed routes, and that is 5.6 dot 12 there's a couple other little things assertions that you can do in uh there's assert not found assert forbidden these are just methods used to assert that a 404 or a 403 was uh, thrown so those were added as well uh, you can check out the change log for that and we'll link that up in the show notes just on those signed urls seeing as we keep going back to them uh there are there are, <laughs> they're know. so cool they're <laughs> such an awesome feature there are a couple of ways I mean, obviously signing them is one part of the equation, but you also have to verify that they're valid. And there are a couple of ways of doing that. Number one is on the request itself, there is a has valid signature method. So if you are doing the checks manually yourself, you could do something like abort unless request has valid signature. And that would then return a 403 if the if the incoming request does not have a valid signature. Alternatively, there is also a validate signature middleware, which will shift all of that stuff up the stack um, and um, and obviously the middleware layer will handle that before the request hits your controller method anyway. That's cool. You could kind of do something like that maybe for like, I wonder if you could almost do it like, I'm trying to think of an instance of when you would do it in the controller. Maybe if you had like a route that could accept both uh, URLs from like logged in users as mm -hmm. well as guest users. So like if you have a guest possibly, you're not going to know what RSVP items they have access to or whatever, right? So you could say if they're coming in with a, with a signed route, they're good to go. Otherwise, if they don't have a signed route, check to see if uh, they're logged in. And then if they're logged in, check to see if they have access to this RSVP record yep. or something like that. So that's interesting. I didn't know that I, I wasn't aware of the ability to check it on the request yeah. itself. So that's that's helpful. Okay, uh, let's talk about this PHP unit pretty result printer package. This is something that I was, uh, I saw uh, David Hemphill turn me on to this last week. Uh, we've got a chat that we hang out in quite a bit and he sent a screenshot and I thought it was Jest or something. I was like, oh, that looks really cool. What is that, Jest? And he said, nope, it is in fact this PHP unit pretty result printer package. So have you ever messed, have you messed around with this I at all, Michael? I tried to. And I had some issues with it. I can't remember exactly if it was a PHP unit 7 issue or a PHP 7.1 issue that I was coming across. So whether it was the version of PHP unit or the version of PHP that I was running, I believe it's fixed now. However, um, I haven't tried it since, okay. but it's, it's just a nice way. It basically shows you in the results when you run PHP unit, the test class name, and then just a simple tick, like a list of ticks, crosses, question marks, for any you know past failed or skipped tests and it it puts it all on one line for you so for depending on the size of your test suite the output from php unit can get quite long so this is just a nice way to con, you know compress that a little bit just so that you can get a nice visual overview of how many tests are passing and failing in you know classes overall so depending on whether you want that high level overview I usually like to see each of the, the individual test names. So I have a bit more verbose, verbose output typically. So obviously it's up to you whether you want the brief output or if you want the full output. But this is certainly a nice way of presenting the, the test results. Yeah, it's super easy to integrate as well. You just compose or require it and then it's just a quick change to your PHP unit XML file. Then it'll work with anytime you do PHP unit. Hey, um, speaking of this, I have a question mm -hmm. for you. 
When you run PHP unit, do you typically run it from a global PHP unit sort of way? Like so, or do you have an alias that aliases to like your your uh, current yeah. project vendor bin PHP unit? I have an unit? alias called unit and I just alias it to vendor bin PHP unit. Um, okay. Using the, yeah. the global version, it gets a bit funny, especially if you run the global version and it doesn't match. Say your global version was seven, PHP unit seven, but your project was PHP unit six. You may get some inconsistent behavior between the two. So, yeah, I've got the the unit alias, which just um, runs vendor bin PHP unit, and then it tacks on, I think, dash dash colors, and it's it explicitly specifies the PHP unit.xml file as well. Awesome. Yeah, this has caused me some pain in the past, so I wanted to at least bring it up. So typically, or not typically, but in the past, I've installed PHP unit globally on my machine. And uh, when you just run PHP unit, it's going to say, oh, sure, I have a global version of that. And like Michael said, if it's, if it's conflicting with the version that's actually in the project that you're using, it can cause you some really weird problems and really weird mm -hmm. issues uh, that aren't immediately obvious. So yeah, I've resulted to um, setting up an alias as well. And mine is just colon colon. So on my command line, I just colon colon, and that runs all my tests for me. But it's an alias to vendor slash bin slash PHP right. unit. Well, that's, a, that's an interesting one. Colon, colon. Yeah, I saw that from somebody in. Yeah, I saw that from somebody in one of our chats. Uh, that they, I think it might be Chris Greener okay. actually, does it that way. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So I thought that was pretty cool. So anyway, yeah, I, I used this in a. Uh, I just integrated this in one of my uh, projects list last week, so I thought it was, that was pretty cool, worth mentioning, and it is out there on Laravel News. So we'll link it up. Okay, what else we got here? We have um, getting started with signed routes in Laravel, and of course we kind of already talked about this, so. We won't beat a dead horse here, and uh, you can read more about that if you'd like to. All right, what else we got? Laravel Excel. So have you ever had to work with Excel in Laravel, Michael? Not Excel specifically. I generally try and steer people towards CSV, and then they can do whatever they want with that raw data at the end of it. Yeah, absolutely. I actually do the same. Yeah, I, I, I give them a CSV, and if they want to open that up in Excel, good for them. If not, then I don't care, and it avoids me having to deal with any of that mess any of that garbage right i'm betting there are some people out there who have had to work with excel in the past i happen to be one of those people i've had to work with it in the past and i mean sometimes it's unavoidable right so a client might send you a or like yeah a client in our case would provide us these excel sheets and there are slight but important differences a lot of times between excel and csv and it's not always immediately obvious what those differences are until you start trying to import stuff and then you get unexpected things, right? So if you're treating it as a CSV uh, and then in fact as an Excel sheet, you might get a little bit of weirdness. So both for importing and actually kind of the more useful case I feel like in this uh, is exporting, you can use this package called Laravel Excel 3.0. So it exposes a lot of the abilities that you have in Excel. Well, I mean, it does, it gives your user, your end user, the ability to get it in Excel, but the ability to export it from Laravel easily to an Excel mm -hmm. sheet is made available to you from this package. So you can easily export collections to Excel. You can export queries. This is pretty cool with automatic chunking. So if you have a large set of queries, a couple thousand, 10,000, 20,000, you can actually uh, chunk those up and it'll export those queries into an Excel sheet for you. Uh, you can queue your exports for better performance. So you can say, hey, do this later, and you can just email it to your user or something mm -hmm. like that. And now with the ability to be able to add attachments to emails from storage, 
I think that would be a really attractive yeah, option. Definitely. So somebody could say, hey, I want to get an Excel printout or an Excel you know, report of this, this large query that you have, this report that has to be run out every week. And it could just say, great, it should be in your email in a couple minutes. And you would just save it to storage and then email it to them. Uh, you can export blade views into Excel. So it gives you a lot of really cool powers uh, that you would just otherwise have to painstakingly do yourself. I have used this before. It was a couple of years ago. I haven't used it since, but it looks like they've uh, run some pretty major updates uh, or put some pretty major updates into it and put a lot of work into it. So if you are one of those poor souls that has to deal with Excel in your applications. This would definitely be worth checking out. So we wanted to highlight that uh, for all of you who are who are in that boat. Yeah, certainly a nice way of simplifying a lot of the operations and taking, you know, native Laravel outputs and using them as inputs into the the spreadsheet. So it handles all of the, I guess, quote unquote nasty stuff for you. And, sure. and then yeah, yeah, especially like if you're gonna queue a job to to maybe generate an excel spreadsheet and then save it somewhere and then queue another job to get that file and then send it um it certainly would simplify the process for you yeah so um it's out there uh, they've got a, a a blog post out there um on their own on medium of course you can check it out on github uh they had a previous iteration of this called php spreadsheet that was just kind of getting out of control and they said we use we use laravel why don't we just make one that's specifically for laravel so that's exactly <laughs> what they did so thank you to those people let's see here matt website patrick browers is the author it looks like yeah yeah thank you to patrick and uh, anyone else that has contributed to this uh, it is like a lot of Spatsy's stuff, postcardware. So if you do do use it, then uh, certainly make sure that you chuck a, a postcard in the in the mail for them. Absolutely. All right, on to um, this one that Eric Barnes, one of our other favorite humans, Mr. Eric Barnes, put into the queue here. So. Get clients. We were talking a little bit before the show, and you are of the opinion and conviction that nobody should ever use a graphical user interface to interact with uh, Git. That, and if they do, they are an amateur. I think those are yeah, your exact, exact words. words. That's not entirely I think true. I think it, you need to understand <laughs> the tools that you're using. And and using Git on the command line, obviously, is is the best way to get a good understanding of what graphical utilities will do you know, behind the scenes for you. I do I, I do use on occasion the GitHub desktop client just because it's a nice way to to manage files and things like that if you want to commit parts of files and things like that. But it's it's good to have an understanding of what is actually happening in Git when you do that in the in the UI. Yeah. And uh that was all totally made up by the way. Michael did not say that. I don't want to disparage his good name. He did not say that. <laughs> so I will say for the majority of my operations, I, I I do as well use the command line. I've got some really nice aliases set up that allow me to quickly add and commit and whatever. And as long as I'm adding like all of the files that I've been working on, I'm totally fine with that. And that usually works really well. There's also like git add interactive or git add patch and those sorts of things. I would actually argue though, that in some senses, a GUI allows people to see more clearly and more easily from the start, what is actually mm -hmm. happening. Now, I don't disagree that over time, you know, you build up your chops or whatever, you get just straight into the command line and you can be really powerful in there. I would say something like tower though, uh, which is what we're actually 
Git, this is the whole thing that this is about. Tower, which is a graphical user interface for interacting with Git or GitHub Desktop or the my personal favorite source tree, uh, which is free, which is why it's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those are actually really good tools for people who are kind of just getting into it because it allows you to visualize kind of what's happening okay so like what's what's in my working directory what's currently staged what is added uh, what has been committed to my branch I can see the history of it all right there instead of having to figure out git log or having to have three different commands to run different types of git logs so I can actually see like the mm -hmm. branching model or you know just the commit messages or all that stuff that being said Neither of us have any problem with anybody using a graphical user interface, and you should definitely try it out if you think it would be something that would be beneficial to you. The second half of what I was saying is, once I do start getting into kind of partial commits, and if I have been working on a branch for too long, and it's been like, ah, crap, like mm -hmm. these are definitely not all grouped together. A lot of times I'll pop up in source tree, and I will add, you know, lines that are relevant to my, my little uh, pieces and commit that yeah. chunk and then kind of continue through. So I do find them to be really helpful. Uh, it's probably like a 75-25% split for me. 75% yeah. command line, 25% source yeah, tree. I, like, um, like yourself, if if I've been working for several hours or sometimes even up to a day on on a single uh, file or that's, single, that's yeah, single project, <laughs> then I might crack open GitHub desktop in those instances just because it's easier to see visually. Um, Git add patch git add dash dash patch is on the command line a good way of of essentially doing the same kind of thing where you're visually selecting chunks that you want to actually commit sometimes the the changes are so close together that you can't split them effectively and it doesn't quite um handle it for you so a visual approach is a little bit easier so as much as jacob tries to throw me under the bus i do <laughs> I do sometimes still reach for the, the GUI when it's a bit easier. For sure. So the reason we wanted to specifically highlight Tower here is because uh, Eric, um, who is our fearless leader, founder of Laravel News, uses Tower all the time. He says it's his favorite uh, kind of way to interact with Git. And so uh, they have come out with a new public beta for their version 3, which is free to try for 30 days. Just up front, the price tag in this, on this is $80. They're not a sponsor for the show. We don't have any coupon codes for you, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, maybe we can reach out to them and see if we can get some. Uh, but they've got some really cool new features in their version 3, uh, which look pretty attractive. Uh, some of them are pull requests. So you can really easily uh, see pull requests, create, merge, close, comment, inspect pull requests from within Tower. Uh, there's also an interactive rebase from within there. Uh, they have this menu that looks almost like Alfred-ish, which is a quick actions. And you can kind of type in and, and you can get out, you can um, type in the name of a file and it will offer to show you the file mm -hmm. history. You can give it a commit hash and it will offer to show uh, the commits details, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of really cool, cool new features that they've, it seems like they've put a lot of work into this version. So if you're looking for a GUI or you're looking for a better GUI, uh, this would be a cool one to check out. Like I said, it's free for 30 days. You can check it out at git-tower.com. All right. Um, there was kind of a uh, public service announcement put out there about updating your blade template templates to use the null coalesce operator. Michael, could you talk to us about that for a couple yeah. minutes? So the null coalesce operator is a feature that was introduced in PHP 7. And so where you previously would have done something like is set dollar variable question mark dollar variable colon you know null or some other default like an inline if statement like a ternary yeah 
the uh, the null coalesce operator essentially shortcuts that just to dollar variable question mark question mark and then whatever the default is. So it would automatically do that is set dollar variable and then use that variable as your default. In the next major release of Laravel, so when 5.7 comes out in July, August of this year, there we're basically going to remove blades or operator. Um, so it used to be that you could do, you know, curly bracket, curly bracket, dollar variable or some default. That's being removed in preference of using the null coalesce operator. So if you are using that or operator in your blade views, I would suggest starting now, you've got a few months up your sleeve to to start sort of going through your blade templates and replacing with the null coalesce operator wherever possible. Yeah, this has uh, been really helpful for me in a couple places. And I've I've used or in other locations, uh, but yeah, it's, it does a, this null coalesce operator does a great job of replacing those sort of those ternaries. Now, it wouldn't replace it if you're checking for a specific value. So mm -hmm. if you're saying, if, uh, you know, I don't know, if user is admin, show this or show yep. this, you know, the null coalesce operator only works in the case where the value is going to be null. Uh, the other place where I've used this null coalesce operator is when I'm using the optional mm -hmm. helper. So it may be that I have uh, entry arrow user arrow avatar or something like that or whatever, right? So you can use the optional helper there. So to wrap that and optional will return null. Uh, if it, if it doesn't have uh, the, the the piece mm -hmm. that it's looking for for there, so uh, that being the case, you can use the null coalesce operator to kind of provide a default in the case that that, uh, that yep. doesn't exist. So that's kind of helpful yeah. too. Yeah, it's 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 worth noting also that since Laravel five point five requires PHP seven, it is a safe assumption that you can already start doing this now if you're on Laravel five five. So as we said, this is a feature that was introduced in PHP version seven, so uh, it'll be gone as of Laravel 5.7, which will be out in July, August of this year. So you've got some time to to start making changes to your code base already. Correct. One of the other frameworks that the Laravel community is in love with is Vue. And so Vue, uh, this last week, let's see, when was it? I don't know exactly when it was, but they've released something called the Vue Cookbook. So this is an official thing that goes along with the Vue documentation and guide. And what it kind of aims to do is give developers examples to work off that cover common or interesting use cases and then progressively explain more complex detail. So the goal is to move beyond a simple introductory example and demonstrate concepts that are uh, widely applicable and then kind of point out maybe some caveats and some maybe pitfalls mm -hmm. that you might want to watch out for. So where the documentation is kind of just very, I don't want to say dry as in a bad sense, but it's just, you know, it explains what it is, but doesn't necessarily the the examples that are given in the documentation are yeah. trivial. Yeah. Right. Because they're just they're just meant to be little snippets that explain the one little piece of documentation that you're in. So the cookbook is meant to kind of combine a couple pieces of the documentation into showing you, hey, here's how you solve this common mm -hmm. problem and uh, kind of put some best practices around that for people who may be new to the community to say, yeah, this is how yeah. you do this particular thing or solve this very common problem yeah the, the cookbook is is more around showing opinionated approaches to solving problems that grabs different bits and pieces of view and combines them into 
uh, like a recipe, I suppose, for solving problems such as validation, consuming APIs with Axios and, and other things like that. So it's designed to give a bit more context and a bit more in-depth explanation to some of the things that may be glossed over in the guide. Obviously, the guide is to cover as much information as possible without causing your eyes to, to gloss over. But once you're ready to start digging in, the View Cookbook is a is a great place to do that. So Sarah Drasner, who's been very active in the View community, and I think she may actually be working. I'm pretty sure she's on the on the core team as well for View. So um, she's leading the drive for a lot of that, I believe. Yeah, and it looks like they're actually taking submissions for ideas to add to the cookbook right now as well. Uh, so you can submit your ideas and they talk about what makes a good view cookbook contribution, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, definitely check that out. We'll link that up in the show notes and double thumbs up. I'm getting a double thumbs up from Mr. Dorinda, which means we are good to move on to the following topic. Let us do so. 5.6.14 was released. Uh, so looks like 5.6.13, 5.6.14 released on Wednesday. How that releases the new view cache artisan command. Hmm. So that because views are views already get cached but so there's yeah so with with laravel what's what's typically happened is that your blade views are cached so they're compiled down into raw php Ah. the first time that they're loaded so now Uh in laravel 5.6.13 as part of your deployment process you can run php artisan view colon cache and that will go through all of your templates and it will basically pre-warm the cache so it will preemptively compile all of those assets down into HT, uh, into raw PHP for you. So you won't get that that slight delay that you might experience the first time a, a view is rendered. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I like that. Very nice. Um, let's see what else we have in 5.6.13. We have uh, minimum and maximum, which are now higher order proxies on collections. Uh, so whereas previously you may have had to say, accounts and then you'd have to say i don't know if you'd say reduce or if you'd say max and then you'd pass it a closure mm-hmm. now what you can do is you can just say max and then say a property or a method that is on that particular model or item and it will go ahead and pull that back just like how the rest of the higher order proxies on collections mm-hmm. work uh, which is instead of passing a closure you can just you know pass the name of the specific method that you want to do like max or find or min or sum or whatever it is and then you can just pass uh as the next thing arrow the method or the attribute from that yeah yeah pretty cool okay uh we've also got two new blade directives we have else auth and else guest uh were added so you can say at auth and then you can give it the name uh like administrator and then you can say else auth standard and then end auth i'm not even sure where you would use this so Maybe in the menu or the nav, but I'm trying to figure out when you say at auth administrator, what that's what that administrator is meaning. Mm. Is that a I don't know if it's a view is or is that a role? Yeah. What is that? At auth administrator. Okay, so you could say like, yeah, so you could have like multiple guards set up. I suppose like you could have like one as like an API token guard, and then you could have one as a different type of guard. Uh, so there's like multiple guards that you could have set up. And this essentially, this at auth, then as a second, or as the, our first argument, then you pass the name of the guard that you're checking for. Mm-hmm. So if they've been authenticated using that particular guard, then you'd be able to say, show them this. And then you could say, 
else auth, which would allow you to provide a next guard, like a different type of guard, and then show something there. And of course, you can chain that as many times as you want, as many else's as you want, and then you end it with end auth, at end auth. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think why or when you would use multiple guard types. TJ Miller might be a good person to ask about this. Yeah, you might. I mean, I suppose you might use different guard types to denote different access levels in your application maybe you've got a like a basic and a pro and a premium sort of version but i I mean i haven't i haven't used custom guards a whole lot myself so if you've got any examples for us please please feel free to reach out on on the twitter and and let us know it looks like jay dex is the person who submitted this one i'd be really interested to hear his use case on this or yeah, anybody else. Anybody else who's using a lot of custom guards? Yeah, reach out to us, talk to us. I'd love to hear what your what your use case is. So in any case, that is now available for you in 5.6.13. Mm-hmm. So the other thing that piqued my interest in this uh, Laravel 5.6.13 is that the optional helper now has callback support. So previously, when you use the optional helper, you basically passed it a value and it would return null. There was no there was no second parameter or anything like that. So as of 5.6.13, you can now pass a callback as the second parameter to the optional helper. And you could do things if, for example, a null value was passed into it, throw an exception. So essentially, if the value passed into optional in the first parameter returns null, then the callback that you pass in the second parameter will not be called. Because it's not giving you a default, it's doing some further manipulation of the value. So in the in the example that you and I have talked about previously, you might have a user comment or commented at, right? Or a user post yeah, sure, commented sure. at. And then what you might do is in the second parameter in the of the optional method, you might have a callback that accepts the user commented at date time and manipulates that value and returns a diff for humans. Got it. So this way you know. I gotcha. I gotcha. So, I mean, I suppose you probably wouldn't do it that way, but that's an example that that might account for it, right? So what you would do is you would probably do optional user commented at end parenthesis and then arrow diff for humans. Whereas with the optional callback that exists now, you could pass the commented at value into the callback and do the manipulation inside the callback, which I suppose makes it a little bit more explicit what's happening. But at the same time, yeah. it's kind of contrary to like the the higher order proxy methods that we just talked about. Like it's just implied yeah, it that seems if you're like using a- Laravel, you'd understand how it works. They're quite different like use cases, really, it seems like. Yeah. In the case that I'm used to using optional, I'm used to just like chucking something in there, wrapping it with optional, and then being able to call something arbitrarily and know that if it doesn't exist, it's just going to return me null, which is handy, yeah. right? Yeah. This case is almost like pass in an argument, and we will make sure that you're not passing a null value to the closure that you're passing as your second argument, right? Mm-hmm. We'll make sure that that value that goes in there is actually something. Otherwise, we're just going to swallow it. We're not going to call your closure, and we're just going to return null to you. Yep. So, yeah, okay. As we always promise ourselves we will not do and end up doing anyway, 
We are reading code on the air that is in front of our faces and we want to apologize in advance. So <laughs> sorry about that. You can check this out in the show notes, which of course will be linked up uh, or in the change log on 5.6.13. Mm. 5.6.13. Okay. So we got on that one, Whew. the view cache, uh, we had the min and max are now higher order proxies. We had the auth directive with else auth and else guest, which it seems like apparently at this point, I make sure that I point this out. Auth is not new. The else auth and else guest are new. Mm -hmm. That's what's new. And then we have the uh, new callback that is passed as a second parameter to optional. All right. Moving on to 5.6.14 after we totally butchered that one. <laughs> uh, there's this new feature in 5.6.14 that says session guard log out other devices, which uh, does the job of invalidating other sessions for the current user. So it says the application must be using the authenticate session middleware. So this is kind of interesting, right? So this allows you, I'm assuming, to if you have other devices, you've I've kind of done this in Gmail before, right? Where yeah. in Gmail, you can say, hey, log out every other account that may be logged into this thing. And I think what that does is I don't know if it like deletes the remember token or how that works exactly. But in this case, it will log out any other devices that are currently using this mm -hmm. application. So yeah, I can think of other times I think of times where that would be helpful. So if I'm afraid that somebody has compromised my account or something like that, I can say, hey, log out all other devices and then change my password, change password. real quickly or something yep. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's pretty cool. That's, uh, I think that's actually been a requested feature. That's something I think I've really needed in the past. Yeah. Um, and I will definitely be using this in the future. It's certainly a handy feature. I think in order for it to work, it will ask for your password as well. So it's not like if someone happens to get access to your account, you know, if you've left it, if you've left an account logged in somewhere, and someone sits down on that computer and starts using it, and you've realized that you can log them out, but unless they've got your password, they can't log you out and then change your password. So it's a pretty handy security measure to have in your application. Yeah. It looks like I didn't know this was a thing. I didn't know that there was a Slack message uh, facade. Did you know this? No. Okay. That must be a 5.6 thing. So there's a Slack message facade that you can use apparently, and an info method was added. Uh, so this allows you to be uh, explicit about defining what type of message you're sending to Slack, but apparently uh, you can do that, which I was not aware that you could do that. So it looks like there's probably like a Slack driver of some sort just built into the framework uh, the now. The notifications, uh, I'm gonna have to I look think. That up. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Yeah, it looks like yeah, it's yeah. a notification channel. Okay, okay, there we go. Very cool. There we go. So that is 5.6.13 and 5.6.14. So of note here, kind of the highlights, session guard, log out other devices, which is pretty cool. And then artisan view cache is awesome as well. Let's see. Laravel log enhancer package. Do we want to talk about that? Um, we can talk briefly about it. I think this is a package written by, looks like it's built by a an agency or a or a development shop in India called Freshbits Web Solutions. So I I did have a chance to to briefly read over this. Essentially it allows you to optionally, you know, log request details. So you can take request parameters, log input data, headers, session data, memory usage, et cetera, et cetera, into your logging stack. I think probably the most interesting for me is that you can ignore input fields. So if you're logging all incoming requests to your application, for example, it does allow you to ignore in the same way that you can hide password fields and things like that from if you if you dump 
the model, like if you return a model from a controller method, for example, and you've got password as a hidden field in your in your hidden property on that model, it will return all of the fields except for the ones that are hidden. So what I thought was very useful with this logging functionality is that if you were to accept input into a log call, you could tell it to explicitly ignore password and, and confirm password. So you can hide these things not only from users that are poking around your system, but you can also keep things out of log files. So you don't have to worry about log files getting compromised on your server and then and then people getting access to passwords and usernames and things like that that way. That's cool. I was actually interested to know if this would do something like log also the response data that it got back. So like in the case that it got a 404 or a 500 or something like that, uh, if it could do the job of returning that or logging that sort of data. I was talking to TJ Miller this last week, actually, and talking about terminable middlewares. Mm -hmm. And he actually has one that he built that does that for him. That kind of logs it all after the fact. Nice. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. But this looks this looks awesome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely use this. We're kind of making a push at work right now to be more intentional about what the stuff is that we're logging. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we're going to be using Graylog to do that. Cool. Uh, which is just a centralized location to push all your logs. So, yeah, interesting. Very relevant and timely for me. Yeah. So thank you to FreshBits. FreshBits. FreshBits Web. Yeah. Thanks, FreshBits. Appreciate that. Okay, we've got one more thing, and then I think we're out. 5.6.15 and 5.5.40 was released with a security patch. Uh, Mr. Security over there. <laughs> you, yeah. You, <laughs> you want to hit me up with what's going on with the security yeah. world here? There was a, a potential exploit of Laravel's encrypted component that was raised by Felix Wiedemann to, to Taylor. So if you do think you've found, just as an aside, if you think you've found a... Uh, and an exploit within the Laravel framework, it is best to contact Taylor directly about it so that it can be addressed. So don't don't go tweeting about it or publishing blogs or anything like that. It's always good if you think you found a security issue to contact, um, you know, the software vendor or the or the application author, things like that in the first instance instance, which gives them a good chance to address the issue and push out a fix before. Um, you know, obviously publishing a blog post and then spamming that around the internet can can lead to people's applications being compromised. So always a good idea to contact the people that are best positioned to to resolve the issue. But this issue that was raised, as I said, is part of Laravel's encrypted component that may have caused the encryptor to fail decrypting and unexpectedly return false. So because the encryptor was, or because you might be checking the values using loose comparison so if you were to decrypt a value and you were to say if decrypted value equals equals empty string php would coerce a false response which the encryptor can do it can return false using the double equals instead of a triple equals would say that well false can be coerced into an empty string and thus it may potentially leak sensitive information from your application so it seems like yeah. It seems like you'd have to have some crappy code in the first place in order to make this work. I mean, if you look at the example, uh, yeah. If you're doing that with decrypted values, that's. I mean, it's not like you deserve it or anything, but like that's you shouldn't be doing that. So. Yeah, certainly it's it's certainly an edge case, but it's something that could you know lead to compromising your users' information, and and that's a, a situation you want to avoid. So, as as much as an edge case as this seems. 
it's it's probably better. It's it's good that you know Taylor has acted on it immediately, um, and it's good that that the release is there. So whether or not you are in a position to have written some code like this, it's good that um, it's it's been fixed up in a timely fashion. And we urge you to update your Laravel 5.5 and 5.6 applications as soon as possible. Yeah, so instead, so what it's doing here for those of you who may be affected by this is instead of now of returning a false value, if you call decrypt on a, on a string, it just it throws an exception. So, so you would be forced to now catch that exception and handle it that way instead, which... Um, I don't know. Like, I don't know what I think about that. That's kind of a pain, really. You know what I mean? I don't know what I just I don't fault Taylor <laughs> at all for releasing this patch. Mm-hmm. Like, thank you, Taylor. But I would rather I don't know. I like the way the code feels better without having to catch the exception. But I get it. I totally get it. Yeah, so. it's probably better that your user sees an exception like that, especially if it's someone that's like, this is something that somebody wouldn't hit by accident they would be intentionally probing your application i would suggest so it's better that an end user gets the whoops screen than you know a dump of some information they're not entitled to see that's true that's true okay well i think that about wraps it up i think so yep happy uh april fool's day to everybody and happy easter to everybody as well it is april 1st here right now I thought it odd that uh, Easter and April first both fell on the same day uh, this year, but Easter is one of those weird. Easter is one of those weird ones. It just always like yeah, it moves. I think it's based random. I still on don't the know what it is, yeah. or the moon or something. I don't, know. I don't know. I have no clue. It's very no very clue. early this year though. Yes, yes, and it is snowing outside huh. in Illinois well, on Easter Day. Yeah, so it's too cold. No fun. My kids were wearing their Easter dresses and sandals and stuff this morning. And it was like, you know, then it was started snowing this afternoon. So the weather in uh, Illinois is uh, deciding to be bipolar. Well, hopefully it sorts itself out before Laracon in July. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully. Fingers crossed. I don't know. (laughs) Chicago's pretty unpredictable. You never know. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to episode 60 of the Laravel News Podcast. If you like this show, you can find our show notes for the episode at laravel-news.com slash podcast slash 60. Uh, also, if you like the show, please please feel free to rate us up in iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Five stars is always appreciated. As always, if you have any questions or comments uh, specifically related to using multiple guards in this case, I think that would be helpful. Also, if you have some interesting use cases for the new closure that you can pass in as a second uh, parameter for the optional helper, I'd love to hear about that as well. You can hit us up at Michael Dorinda, at Jacob Bennett, at Laravel News on Twitter. Those, that's a great way to contact us. And then what else is there? I think that's all of it. I think so. I think that's all of it. I think so. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you in a couple weeks. Hopefully before then. Hit us up on Twitter with all your cool things that you're using those guards and optional stuff for yeah definitely be awesome i'd love to hear from you <gasps> you know what what we had a couple things we had did we did have a couple of people who said stuff to us didn't we well, we did real quick so last time we talked about the the certs and how they expired you know how we how we like said like you know the wildcard ssl stuff yeah we were like yeah if you have any domains that are like business critical might be a good idea to just get a 10-year cert on them sort of thing mm-hmm. and he's arguing that's not necessary yeah so the the idea with the short expiration on Let's Encrypt was to encourage automation of the renewals. So if you, as as you mentioned, you know, you just get a 10-year certificate. If you get a 10-year certificate, 
you have to remember to go and get the new signing request, send it off to the certificate authority, get the certificate back, go and manually implement it. The idea behind the the 90-day renewal is that you know it encourages people to set up automation to make sure that those certificates keep being renewed. And you can actually renew the certificate anywhere after 60 days. So basically, if you can't renew that certificate with, with 30 days, something is kind of wrong with your automation. But the original Acme shell script that was created for it or CertBot, which I think is the newer the newer method for automatic renewal is a lot better than what it was in the earlier days. And and as we said, Forge will handle all of this for you anyway. So entirely up to you what you want to do. But you know, you could use you could use a service that that monitors your SSL certificates and lets you know, you know, if they haven't been renewed and if they're expiring soon. So at least that way you've got some notification that the certificate is going to be causing you trouble in the near future. Yeah. So my mistake in this was that I said, you know, they're only good for 90 days. And if it fails to redo on day on day 89, you're screwed. Well, so Adam basically corrected my mistake and said, you know, it starts to try and renew itself after 60 days. So it's going to fail for 30 days before it finally expires. So you have 30 day, a 30 day window to be able to do that, right? To yeah. be able to get it renewed or fix whatever problem is causing it to not be renewed. So that's good to know. And it sounds like Adam has had really good success. He says he has 40 domains that he runs for various companies of all sizes. And so he uses Let's Encrypt for all those. It's free and it's been working like a charm for him. So maybe we cause a little bit of undue fear there. I don't know. I think it's, it's again, it comes down to personal preference, right? Like if you're okay with that, that's fine. If you'd rather have like a for sure thing for 10 years and only have to worry about it every 10 years, I mean, that's mm. another possibility too, right? So it's just a personal preference thing. Yeah. Uh, but thanks. We wanted to thank Adam and definitely mention him for uh, reaching out. Uh, we really appreciate yeah. that. I suppose, you know, there's a lot of lot of turnover in, the, in our industry. So if you register a certificate for 10 years, there's a good chance it won't be your problem when it comes up for renewal. Correct. That is correct. <laughs> Another good point. Another good point. Okay. I think that was the only message. Did we we had one other message, but that was for other podcasts. I think so, yeah. That's right. Okay. All right, everyone. Thanks. Look forward to hearing from you soon. See you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Bye.